Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And um, before we begin today's podcast, I just want to um, remind everybody that we did post last week a holiday gift buying guide, um, address some great places that you can go and get stuff. But as we record this, and it will be um, still happening by the time it actually goes up, but um, you can buy directly from a lot of fabulous boutique shops via Unique LA, which is having its holiday sale this weekend in downtown Los Angeles at the California Market Center. And if you go to their website, they have an index of the people who are showing, a lot of uh, ability to get amazing, uh, unique things from the people who actually make it, eliminating the middleman. So this week on the show, what I thought would be nice since the the kind of as we all know, the the underlying theme, if not the overlying theme, of pod sequentialism is sort of the DIY uh, nature of things. You know, do it yourself, uh, find your your bliss, and follow it, and and do what you need to do to accomplish your own happiness. And we've never really addressed something which is really near and dear to me, and something that I was completely fascinated with in my teens when I first came out to LA. And that's you know special effects makeup and creature making and costume design and prop building, and just by by luck of the draw, um, last weekend was was it last weekend? Yes, it was. It was DesignerCon. Wow, it, it seems like it was a year ago because of <laughs> the amount of people that were there. But uh, Decon in Pasadena um, bumped into my my old friend Ted Smith, um, known as Evil Ted. That is correct. And um, the the name could not be less fitting of the man. Ted's an amazing guy, um, and uh, someone I really I go back pretty far with, and especially around love of movies. And you can also go onto YouTube and see some of Ted's amazing tutorials as on the Evil, the evil Ted uh, Smith channel. That's right. Evil on Ted. YouTube. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, you just go to uh, YouTube, type in Evil Ted, I pop up. Or you can just go to EvilTedSmith.com. And get the links. That's it. And so I thought it'd be great to have Ted on because, you know, I've known many actors. I've known many producers. I know a lot of writers. And there seems to be sort of like an established... Um, I guess there's steps that people know that they can take. Like if you want to be an actor, you, you know, you start either in community theater or you, or you find a way or you go to college and you get involved in drama or or something. But you can you can just pick up a trade publication and look in the back and you can go on auditions. And writers, you know, it's a little bit harder to get in, but there are writers' guilds. There's routinely workshops and you can look in certain trade publications that let you know when people are reviewing new material. Um, but when it comes to special effects... There's a lot of people who are kind of doing their own thing and making little short films of their own right. in other places, and they figure, you know, I think I'm, I'm at least at a sophistication level where I could start pitching for real money to be able to do these things or get a job working with, you know, someone, God rest his soul, like a Stan Winston right. or um, a Dick Smith, another God rest his soul, and uh, to a lesser extent, maybe someone like Tom Savini, and then now, of course, K&B being huge. That people may think, oh, you know, I really love making my costumes. I make my own zombie costumes, and now I'd really love to get a job on Walking Dead. And those jobs seem to be a little bit harder to find. And so before we dive into that, I want to um, get everybody kind of familiar with your background because mm. you've done a lot of really, really different things. Uh, yeah, I was um, <clears throat> much like you described me. I was a little boy in Midwest Missouri, St. Louis, and mm -hmm. – uh, Loved all stuff, and I would make little Super 8 movies with my friends and cardboard and copy. And I remember forget, there was a book that came out in the uh, 80s called Star Trek Tactical Manual. Yeah, I remember that. And it had blueprints of the phaser and the tricorder at full size. And I flipped out. My friend had it. I didn't even own it. My friend mm -hmm. had it. So I borrowed it and took a vanilla like tracing paper, and I traced it. And I went home and <laughs> reproduced them on a poster board and cardboard. 
and I spray painted them and I went over testers models for the silver edges and trim line. And I never forget my parents were like, holy crap, where'd you get that? I'm like, I made it. And that was like the evolution of like, I love Star Trek. And the problem with, with 70s, grew up in the 70s, and even in the eight, uh, 70s and 80s, when toy companies made things, they didn't make it look like the thing from the show. Yeah, they really just looked like toys. Yeah, they looked like toys, and they crapped them out. And of course, the, you had these big producers, and like not producers, but I'm, I talk movie talk because that's how I talk. But it's the same kind of, you got executive people in toy companies that have no touch with the industry, what's going on. They just keep crapping out the same template, like, oh, this is what we'll do, this is what we do. And so Star Trek, the, like the phaser was bright blue, and like a giant flashlight, and the communicator was like light blue with a dark blue base and a light blue handle and a big mm -hmm. antenna on it. And you're... As a kid growing up, just that was my mission to make stuff. And that's what got me started in the building was wanting to make things that didn't look like they did in TV shows. Started building, started making cooler stuff, started making costumes for my friends, mm -hmm. started making little short movies and making props for my movies. I've seen a great photo of you with a paper mache Darth Vader head. Yes, that is correct. I was <laughs> I was 14 years old and I saw Star Wars and that was it. Yep. That was the film that set me in motion. That was when... I had a friend one time we were writing a bio and I told him that and he goes, oh, everybody says that. I said, well, that's because you're not from that generation because when that film came out, there was nothing like it. Yeah. At the time, there was you know, like cop dramas and suspenseful. In America, not George Lucas, uh, it's like lightning in a bottle, he hit the nail on the head. People wanted fantasy, people wanted escape because the crap mm -hmm. that was going on in the world was shit. Yeah. And you think it's bad now. You know, back then it was just kind of like, ugh. Well, even at Fox. You know, at Fox, when Star Wars was coming down the pike, they had other movies that were on the schedule. And people were like, oh, you know, I, I hope I get the same release date as Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like they thought they had a home run, you know. And it's like the, the type of thing that to a much lesser extent would happen to people. Like um, I remember uh, hearing Alec Baldwin talking about the remake of The Getaway, you know, and it's Phil Juan. He's a great independent filmmaker, mm -hmm. and they're doing this – you know, Jim Thompson novel, and it's a husband and wife project, and they know each other really well, and he's really proud of his performance, and he looks on the schedule, and he's like, Ace Ventura, this TV comedian that makes the faces, <laughs> we're going to kill at the box office. <laughs> you know, and of course, Ace Ventura railroaded him. But yep. the, um, you're right, you know, that in America, especially because there was at least still a kind of, you know, you still had the Westerns being made in Europe, and that was a little bit of nice fantasy escapism. Right. And in the comics in Europe, there was a lot of sci-fi comics. And in the U.S., it was all superheroes. And none and of that it, stuff was being monetized in any crap. kind of media way. It yeah. was done badly. It was television, like all the TV superheroes. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. They made a TV version, Doctor Strange. I remember it was terrible. And it was the guy actually was a character actor. And he had big, thick, curly hair. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah, and they, even, they even changed the script because originally... They actually did the movie right, but it was his hands. Yeah. Uh, and the TV version, I think he was a therapist or psychologist. Wow. And they'd read, I'm like, it was, yeah, it was horrible. Well, they were going after that MASH uh, yeah, yeah. demographic. Yeah, it was, oh, it was so bad. But uh, then, of course, along came uh, Hulk. Mm -hmm. uh, they did Spider-Man, yeah. which Spider-Man, was a, I was a kid. I loved it. But even as a kid. You knew it was bad. I knew it was bad. I wanted to like it so much. I'm like, eh, yeah, but it's Spider-Man. Mm. And the guy that they got to play Spider-Man was not a high school kid at all. I was yeah. kind of like, oh, why'd you do that? And then there's a gag where he jumps to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. It was a big gag because he's an actor and he jumps in the ceiling and he crawls down the uh, the ceiling, mm -hmm. hanging from the ceiling, and he's crawling the guy and he's kicking the guys and punching them as he's hanging. Is it Nicholas Hammond? Was that was it the actor? I think so. And the, the gag was when I was a kid, even my father was the one that kind of pointed out to me, but 
the ceiling had a grid on it, mm-hmm. the tile. So that was where the cable was hiding. So the grid of the ceiling where they had a cable on the guy's actor around his waist and it held him upright and they would pull, you know, the cable would pull and he would crawl himself down. And of course they did yeah. it actually upside down at the time. I was yeah. like, they should, was, I was going to say they should have done the, just the angled camera like yeah. they did on Batman. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, it was the thing about that show is you wanted to see it because it was Spider-Man, but then you'd act, it would make you long for the electric company mm-hmm. and the silly noise making non-vocal Spider-Man, awesome. which was scary looking. Yeah, he was pretty great. And he did. They did the uh, big eyes like from yep. the comic book, and he was uh, very animated. The guy was fit too. He's yeah. stealth. He was super lean. He jumped around and, uh, but yeah, but that was um, the the seed that was planted in me, and so I literally packed my bags. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was still working in St. Louis. I worked at Sears Portrait Studios. I was a baby photographer. <laughs> we have that in common, too. We both worked at Sears Roebuck in yep. high school. Yep. Yeah, I did for a long time. And then uh, my buddy got divorced from his wife. He's like, I'm out here, man. He left. I go, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to go to California yeah. and seek my dream. I'm like, yeah, dude, good luck. He takes off. I'm still working at Sears. Uh, I'd say, what, a week, two weeks? Mm-hmm. He calls me. Hey, man. I go, hey, why are you doing? He goes, I'm working on a zombie movie. I'm wow. like, what? Wow. Dude, you, you haven't even been out there. He goes, yeah, I'm making uh, this movie called The Laughing Dead. And the stuff on the set test, not even, it's almost as good as what you do. You probably even do better. I'm like, beep, that was it. That's yes. all I heard. Gave my thir- bags. Thir- gave a 30-day notice. I never forget my parents were freaking out. Like, what? Yeah. What What are you doing? I'm, I'm out of here, man. Yeah. And I think back about that. I was 25. Yeah. And I literally, that was the trigger that was thrown. I took my entire life. Everything I owned in the back of a U-Haul truck, uh, rented, packed it up, had my car on a trailer hitch on back, and just loaded up and took off. And yeah. I, 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 I had my rough, my I had some pictures and things taken. I kind of documented some stuff, and I was making a makeshift portfolio. And at that time, I had this illusion of being a makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say illusion is I will get to that very quickly. As I show up in L.A., uh, I, I ended up getting an apartment next to my friend Wyatt, who moved out. Mm-hmm. I found him because I'm like, where do you live? And I came to stay with him. And I said, hey, is a space available? Just take that space next door. Mm-hmm. So we we're like adjoining apartments, like three's company. We had the adjoining apartment. And then I started going out to look for work. And I ended up getting a job. I did some model work in the beginning. But I ended up getting a job on the sci-fi movie called The Giver. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was uh, Steve Wang was his directorial debut. I ended up meeting Steve on Tales from the Dark Side of the movie. So then I get immersed with these guys. And I'm so thrilled I was getting paid. I worked in a shop, and I was just in like busting ass to do whatever I could do. And I was making molds, gigantic containers full of the powdered latex to make liquid latex, yeah, like supplies, all, like you would res- dream of. Yeah, and resins and casting resins, stones, and everything. And I was kind of learning, and they were just teaching me how to do stuff. I was like, okay, Ted, I was getting paid fifty bucks a day. <laughs> yeah, but this was what nineteen eighty. Yeah, eighty nine. Eighty nine. Eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. So I was getting fifty bucks a day, and like I think back, I'm like, oh my god, I can never even work that day. So anyway, I worked for fifty bucks a day. But I was a sponge. I was sucking up all this information. Well, your rent back then was probably two hundred dollars. Yeah, it was. It was about four fifty. Okay. Oh, well, you had a much nicer place than the one I lived yeah, there okay. when I came out here. <laughs> so I was living there, and I was doing the fifty bucks a day, and I was working. And the funny thing about it was, um, I was learning, but I was surrounded by guys who were truly makeup artists, sculptors, and uh, Eddie Yang, who's a phenomenal designer. And he still works, still working in the industry today. Mm-hmm. I was working next to him, mm-hmm. and I watched Steve Wang and Eddie Yang take a life cast, and they were slapping clay on it. And what they blocked out in eight hours mm-hmm. would take me a week. I sit there and watch these guys, and Eddie Yang was 17, 18 years old. 
here I am, 25. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at this kid going, okay, reality check. I'm amp. I'm, I'm, I can get, I can get, I can make something relatively mm-hmm. decent. I'm big in St. Louis, Missouri, but out here in Hollywood, that's not going to fly. Um, and then what happened was there's a device in the film called the Guyver unit. Mm-hmm. And Steve and these guys were makeup artists. They weren't model makers or prop makers or just makeup guys. And they're like, right. oh, there's a thing called the Guyver unit. It needs to do this and that. And they're like all kind of confused. I'm like, dude, that's easy. I got that. Yeah. And I think back about this. Kudos to Steve. I'm 20, 25. I just moved out. Mm-hmm. He saw my stuff. I'm not really that experienced. He just let me run with it. He's like, right. okay, go. So I would start building and he would oversee it. And the gag in the film is, if you guys are familiar with the uh, cartoon, The Guyver, it's a kid who finds this ancient alien artifact. It's like a little metal metal device. And uh, Steve sculpted the suit to be more organic. Mm -hmm. So I matched Steve's design from the suit to make the Guyver unit. As I'm making it, it was just an initial prop and the center glowed had this glowing metal. So I made this thing with a ring and a glue light and it pulsed and glowed. And it was just me with a Variac off camera. It wasn't Simon. It wasn't the... uh... You know, you would know. The family electronic game sound. No, no, that was just me off camera with a very active, you know, turning it up and down. And um, the funny thing was, Steve comes to me and says, okay, there's a scene where he transforms and these guys are in an alley and he, he falls on it and it latches onto his head. He rolls over and I want to see the control metal sink into it, like sink into his head. Mm-hmm. I want the panels to shoot open and these tentacles to shoot out. Right. Again, never it's did like it. one of the best scenes in the movie. Thank you. And uh, I was like, Holy shit! Uh, okay, not part of me was like, "Oh, what are you talking about? I don't know anything." But I was like, "No, I got this. I got this." And I mm-hmm. sat home and I never forget. I was thinking about something. There was this gag where they were throwing these knives in a movie. I went, "Oh, wait a minute! They did it in reverse." Yeah. When they picked this guy in the head with a knife, and uh, Tom Savini, when he put a machete in somebody's head. Yeah, in Prowler, and in uh, uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Four, where he does the slide down the. Um, but also, too, there's the, the yeah, and then the. Um, and Don the Dead, when the zombies knocks a guy off the motorcycle, that's right. He picks up a machete and goes, and he buries it halfway into his head. As a yeah. kid in the seventies, like holy crap! Yeah. And you realize when you watch it, Tom Savini said it was the simplest trick. They took a machete, they put an armature wire on the guy's head to make the curvature of the guy's <laughs> head. He used to do those. We used to make yeah. those. Yeah. Put an armature curvature on his head, made the template, laid on this this uh, machete, and just traced it and took it to a metal blade and he just cut a big dulled chunk, it, yeah. dulled it, shut it, put it on the actor's head. And he'd hold it and they'd call action, he'd pull it out. Mm-hmm. So they play it in reverse. And I went, that was so effective. And the hand pull is so fast that you don't even you, notice that there's anything cut out yeah, of the blade. Yeah, it's, so, it's a blur. Yeah. So on the Guyver, the gag was they would call action. And I had this, I had a life cast of the guy, it was a fake head mm-hmm. with a hole in it. So I had this, I had my, my you know, core thing with the panels all opened up with these tentacles I made out of rubber. And I just coated them with silicone, like glistening glue and KY and minimal shiny. Mm-hmm. They'd call action. Underneath the table, I would yank all the tentacles, and all the tentacles were laid out, and they would, they would sh- they'd shoot inside the thing. And disappear. They'd pull into the core, whoosh, and I would pull the string to close the latches, blip, and the very last thing was I'd push the, uh, the control metal up, like, whoosh, and that was it. And it went by so fast, but when you see the movie, it's, I, this day I'm so proud, it's virtually flawless. It's, yeah. it's such a simple gag, and it looked great. It's a great scene in the film. And the... um. You know, the interesting thing, like I say, it's it's that, you know, people, they don't know until they come out and do stuff. And that's why I always tell people whether we're talking about publishing their own comics or, you know, writing a book um, that, you know, there's now a lot of things that are available to them that weren't available to people of, of our generation, right. you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, that um, we really did need to have to know somebody. Otherwise, the amount of money that it costs to do stuff was so 
extraordinary. And you'd come out here and, I mean, what you could accomplish at a shop where they had all the materials is already, you're talking about budget to have stuff around of maybe a million dollars that doesn't go into, you know, what you would need to buy stuff to make mm-hmm. things. So that if you don't, if you're not in a shop, you wouldn't have the resources that they have. And so you'd never be able to do stuff. And so you're really relegated to the kind of homemade DIY stuff that we'd grow up making. Right. And then you get access to this stuff. And then you learn from people who know the business and the shortcuts that you, that you don't know about. And then you learn 10 times faster than you learned on your own. And you've got all these resources to test things out. And the thing that's amazing right now is that you just said it too, is that the marketing Back in the day, if you did anything, if you want to make a comic book or you want to make a movie or you want to make something, it's all about advertising, like you had to pay for ad. The advertisement industry is stumbling and they're flipping out because they don't, there's so many people out there, like myself, that, uh, guys, you have Instagram, you have Twitter, you have uh, YouTube, and it's like a website, and it's like you can promote yourself. Yeah. If you're starting off as a comic book and an illustration, I have a friend who's, um, his name's Aaron Farmer. He's a fantastic illustrator. Mm-hmm. And I got it. I'm yelling at him lately. He needs to draw more. He posts up little pictures on Instagram because he's phenomenal. He's a great artist. I said, you start doing He has a comic book he wanted to do and this mm-hmm. and that. I said, you got to start putting out, get, build a fan base. It's not hard. Tweet every day. Instagram every day. Post something every day. Something small. Doesn't matter, minute. And then you start. What you do is you start to reach out other people like you. Mm-hmm. Don't just do, don't do, don't be about yourself. Be about other people that do what you do. It's the tribe. It's the tribe. And what I did was uh, I started streaming. I have a YouTube channel. I teach people how to foam fabricate. Yep. And I've been doing it for the first two years. And my third year, I have a buddy, Bill Duran from Punish Props, mm-hmm. and he does the same thing I do. And I his his advice to me is like, Ted, make videos. So I started yeah. making videos, but I joined Twitch dot tv right right holy crap it's a different animal um i was kind of like being the old curmudgeon like oh you know i already got youtube i got instagram i got twitter blah facebook blah blah i don't need twitch and feels like ted sign up on twitch do twitch what twitch is it's a live stream mm-hmm. i just get up on mondays and tuesdays uh from 9 a.m to 11 a.m pacific standard time and i stream in my shop i just start building and i have a project yeah. and i'll post and tweet and what happens is this community of people, and it's not just fans, they're builders like me and other builders. I feel people just as equal as, as good as I am sometimes come in the chat uh, and we start talking so I can build live and answer questions. Mm-hmm. And it's like my shop num- talk and shop yeah. talk and my numbers exploded. And now I've added another day. Now I do Thursdays. I've added Thursdays. So now you archive those on YouTube. Yes. And I can do your live stuff on Twitch. And the cool thing with Twitch is, like, yeah, and I got lazy. I'm a little behind, but I take the archives of this Twitch and I edit them down. And the funny thing I learned really quickly is that I love having music in the background. Mm-hmm. But and, you need to get the rights and, and I started doing it. I was like, yeah, this is fun. This is fun. I put some music on, hang out. I could do this forever. And all of a sudden, I started realizing, oh, wait, I got to archive this. So I have to start streaming without audio. Yeah. Because I can't have music in the background. But there's people like um, a Reb Chumley and Evil Effects and um, there's a couple of guys that, that stream that just put music on in the back because that's all they do yeah they don't do youtube they don't need to archive it they do so well yeah. on twitch as is they're like screw it we don't care yeah. so they have 80s and 90s pop music playing in the background <laughs> which is fun i envy them i'm like i want to do that i think that it's going to hit a point and i'm surprised it sort of already hasn't that um and i think people are also 
frustrated with things like ASCAP and the type of music publishing companies that come after you. You know, and we have people that call the shop in the gallery that I run. You know, they'll call those days Zeus and they'll be like, we noticed that your ASCAP insurance is gone. You know, you haven't been playing music in the store, have you? And it's like, we only play independent, you know, rock that we get from the artists. Like, well, we represent independent people too. And it's like, I'll t- send somebody down, you know, and we end up just paying it anyways because it's, it's, it's like a, a lawsuit scam it, well, with these people that, that don't trolls. even handle the publishing. Yeah, and yeah, then the people don't even get the money. The people whose music that you'd be playing, they're not making the money. It's no. just like this industry of paying people that are going and, after people. And for again, using it. the government does nothing about it. And there's yeah. always more, even when Obama was in office, he was like, "Oh, you know, we need to," because Mark Marin uh, and M. Carolla and a couple of and Joe Rogan, a whole bunch of guys got together to get money together to fight these uh, patent trolls, saying, "Hey, yeah. you, I'm like going," and the. And Adam just called him like, this is bullshit. And what they do is they want you to, so unfortunately Adam had the money, so he had to fight him just mm-hmm. to say, he spent money. Did not, not have to pay them. Not yeah. to pay them. And he said that it would have been cheaper if I paid him, but then they would have came back later. Yeah. So he's like, no, screw this. I want to make, make an example. And they fought him and he said, they're gone, but doesn't mean they won't come back again. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a little quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to delve into some of the other aspects of if you like making creatures and you like making props, you're not just relegated to TV and movies anymore. There's not a lot of other stuff happening. Not anymore. It's a whole new world. Yeah. So in just a few seconds, uh, stay tuned for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with Evil Ted Smith on this special DIY episode of How to Become a Prop Maker of Pod Sequentials with Matt Kennedy. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me today, Evil Ted Smith. Hello. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about um, the kind of unbelievable way that um, that he was able to make it into uh, special effects and prop building and that type of thing. And we want to stress that um, it's actually easier now than it was then to be able to do this type of thing. It, it, well, I mean, let's just put it this way. It's easier to do it for yourself now. Yeah. Um, What's happened in the industry is that industry, unfortunately, is having its ass handed to it. It's being just it's being destroyed because you have YouTube now, you have Netflix, mm-hmm. you have Amazon, you have all these people making their own content. Hollywood's f- struggling trying to keep up. Their model, how to make a film, is so damn expensive mm-hmm. that they're not reformatting. Uh, my buddy Bill Durant turned me on to these guys. Oh my god, I feel bad because I should know their name to plug them, but they um they have these little YouTube shorts. They're based out of Texas. Mm-hmm. They make these short films, and they're amazing. And they're like some one from five minutes to seven minutes. They're super short, but the production value. And they have money. They mm-hmm. have subscribers. They get money from subscribers, and they make these really intense shorts. Some are yeah. dramatic. Some are funny. And your watch is thinking it's three or four guys, people, and they hire local actors who are not friends that you shoot on the weekend. They're like real actors. Pros, yeah. Yeah, they're pros. Maybe they're from the local college. Yeah, but local they, college, they but, they're, but they're all skilled, mad skills. They show up and they just kneel these things and like, and I thought that's the future of entertainment right now because mm-hmm. you, my thing is, uh, what's the old saying? If you build it, they if will you, come. Yeah, if you make it, they will come. If you do something good, I have friends that always say, Ted, what is your advice to work in the movie industry? I'm saying, okay, here it is. Number one, uh, start building. Start building. What do you want to do? Build. Number two, get good. Mm-hmm. And get good, so good that not your parents and your friends are telling you you're good. Get other people to tell you you're good. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that level, then get fast. Mm-hmm. Then you have to get really fast. Yeah. <laughs> get good, then get all, and then get fast. And then when you're at that level, then that's when you kind of like momentum and put it because the uh, Hollywood machine is like a 
like a giant like meat grinder with chain like and when you get that opportunity to step in you got to be able to keep up you got to it's like hey can you do this yes and you jump in i worked this company for 13 years called hpr hemp prop room Mm -hmm. and the thing i can say about that company was i learned so much in the first five years i was there because i was pretty good Mm -hmm. and i thought i knew stuff and when i stepped in there they i mean i had the speed the momentum to keep up but i had to learn a lot and they were patient with me they kept that okay well here just do this really quick and they would show me and once they show me okay i got it got it and but i learned how to work with metals and i learned i learned better techniques of mold making, but everything we learned was to do something in half the time. Right. And we got faster and faster and faster. And the scary thing with the Hollywood industry was that I was there for so long, so I was there for the strange only 13 years. Toward the last, I'd say last three or four years, the neck breaking speed, because they wanted things faster yeah. and cheaper. When you when I started in Hollywood and you did monsters and creature effects, you would have months. Yeah. Rick Baker used to get years, be like a year to a month. And then it went from months to like, um, you know, years and then months, and then it got to weeks. Mm-hmm. And when I worked at the prop house, it was weeks and days. I would come in in the morning. I would come in seven o'clock in the morning. Ted, Ted, okay, we need this. This is due today at three. I'm like, what? So this is three. This is tomorrow at five. Grab these five guys. Yeah, and, and, and like tons of budget. And, I, and and like we're juggling. And unfortunately, they had here's the scary thing. Production had money. This production, but they never wanted to give it to the prop house. So we had to do all the other prop master because he would bitch and groan about oh, it's too much money and it was just irritating because the prop master guys they're not they're just pocketing it. Yeah. It's just they get a big budget and their job is to pay as little as possible. Yeah. So they could keep it. So we had to deal with that a lot. And yes, I am saying this on a podcast and I don't care. We we save the bodies buried. You know, the the, <laughs> the very the second guest we had was Steve Bissett and he was talking about page rates in the comic industry. He gave up all the numbers and you know that's a lot of people. That I know that are comic comic industry guys. Like when they heard that, they were like, "Okay, I'll do your show now." Yeah, it, <laughs> you know, it, like... it, it's scary because it's it, it, what drove me crazy was the word "prop" and "master" should never go together. <laughs> you can say "prop" and you can say uh, "prop furniture mover" or "prop guy who breaks down a script," mm-hmm. but the word "master," unfortunately, the guy who does all the break, he, they have they know the least amount of what it takes to co- mold right. something, cast something. The guys below them know all that stuff. Yeah. So what they do is they hire a bunch of people like myself, who understand these things, but what it is, is it, then we turn and tell our bosses, that's impossible. Whoa, you guys got to find a way. And so what ended up happening was we'd kill ourselves to come up with these faster techniques and faster ways of doing things, but we're not making any more money. Right. We're not getting an attaboy or a pat on the back. It's just, it's just job well done, move on to the next. And you jump from one crazy job to the next. And it was, in 13 years, I was like, I was done. Yeah. So I was like, I could not, couldn't take any more. So I said, I'm going to step out. And I had fun. I did a little YouTube video, uh, how to make a foam helmet. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I was seeing these people on uh, Facebook. Mm, excuse me. This coffee's really good, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, that was, a, it was um, Facebook and uh, I was looking at these people. I was, I was thinking it started back in MySpace days. And from MySpace to wow. Facebook, I was seeing these amazing costumes. I'm like, holy crap, these guys are making, they're not, they're not Hollywood industry people. These are just people at home. And I started getting really jazzed by that, like seeing, and I felt like I need to, I need to step my game up. So I started watching people's videos. People were using like hot glue and like, I'm like, and you know, there's other, so I started making a video on just how to make a helmet, about heat forming foam and using contact adhesive. And the video was a hit. And then people came to me and said, we would like some more videos. And so I started making more videos. And then next thing you know, mm-hmm. I started making them. And I love the fact that 
people were just like, oh my God, I was so, and I get lots of letters from people saying I was extremely intimidated. I had no idea how I was going to build this. And after I watched your video, you broke it down for me to make it like, an, oh, like this is doable. And yeah. the answer is yes, it is. And what I, I guess in the industry, it drove me crazy when I first came out here when I was really young was when I asked a question how something was done, people, they look at me like, oh, what, like, what do you expect me to tell you? I'm like, oh, the trade secrets, yeah, the trade secret crap. And yeah. it got to a point where in Hollywood, everybody had this, oh, that's trade secret, that's trade secret. And I just, the more and more I ran into, I got really angry. I'm like, it's, and it, it's, if I look at something long enough, I'll eventually figure it out, mm -hmm. but I'm going to figure it out. And, yeah. and the idea that, that you rest your job. Or he was a Lance Burton. Of special <laughs> effects, <laughs> you're you're breaking open the magic for everybody. And I just thought this is ridiculous. And so there's like Bill and this guy Bill Turner and Punch doing like molds and stuff. And like I thought that's great. I want to get into fabricating. I'm gonna teach people that you can do stuff out of just my missions. Get people who can get anything at a retail store, or a hardware store, and make an amazing costume. And you actually tell I've I've seen many of the videos, and I went back and I watched the helmet video, the three part helmet video. And you know you're talking about hey, this is a glue box. You can get this at an auto store and look at this, pick it up, and it's like it stays glue. You don't get the glue over your hands. And it's like, oh, did I tell you you should probably have rubber gloves on? <laughs> you know, it's like, but it, it's really, it really does break it down in a way that, in, in a really non intimidating way, and just like, uh, hey, this is how I do it. And um, I'm not saying this is the best way, but this is a way. And um, you can benefit from my experience. Now, you also, as you were transitioning out of working in film, you end up working with Rob Zombie. Yes, sir, I did. And so, I mean, for people who, who don't know, and there may be people who are fans of his music that never got a chance to see him live, when you were part of the Entourage. Yeah, that was fun. And that's like some really extravagant, like way over the top, Alice Cooper times yes. 100 of, um, of really high quality stage special effects. It was really like a, a Broadway play set to you know some pretty great aggressive music and and rob was really uh, given this kudos to him that was ambitious what the budget was for and the i show. will say i think he's a, a, his films are terrible oh yeah he's a horrible film but he's such a good guy yeah and, it, and and the music is good i like the music too but that that show was incredible yeah and the thing with rob what i liked about it was that rob like he saw he loved alice cooper and yeah like, he's like i want to do what alice cooper and does. alice cooper kind of gave him the nod he's like you know this is the guy i'm going to pass the mantle to right very famously did not like marilyn manson at all no he didn't who was and, probably more earning of the shock rock kind of it, thing and i like marilyn manson he had a different style it's more yeah. the gothic centric stuff but yeah rob was kind of like you know like halloween you know like the super halloween like scary movie times 10 thing yeah is that rob on that Rock is Dead tour was the tour I went out with him. That was like ninety seven, I think, or ninety five. Earlier than that, yeah, ninety five, I think. Ninety five. Uh, we went out with Rock is Dead tour. Rob won this whole Dante's Inferno look thing, and uh, mm. uh, Norma Cabrera and a bunch of sculptors That's right. guys Norman came. Was around back yeah, then, and yeah. he sculpted. He did this giant mantle pieces, and I came aboard and helped with the costumes. I started doing pieces with Norma on the set, but then Rob wanted crazy costumes, and that fell into my department. I started doing costumes for him, building things and. Rob finally just turned to me and said, hey, I want some people to manage this stuff when we're on tour and like be in part of it and walk around. Would you be interested in doing that? Like, mm -hmm. Work was slow. I'm like, yeah, sure. And when I started looking into it, Rock, Rob was big as he was, but he was touring with Corn, mm -hmm. and Corn was headlining. And I was thinking, that's odd. Like, Rob's going to... I thought, when I went on tour and watched the, master me, the mastermind logic of Rob Zombie, all these kids were coming to see Corn. All right, they knew of Rob, mm -hmm. but they didn't know 
like oh yeah they all come for corn so corn was huge so they're yeah. corn and heavy and they were you know, huge and heavy there and man yeah. they were and like MTV they were playing everything so we get there he did to corn what corn did to Alice in Chains <laughs> right. basically because they were opening for Alice in Chains and what ended up happening was sure enough um, Rob would open for corn so we'd get in the stage and his little small band would come out to warm the crowd up and then Rob this giant it's called a kabuki uh, kabuki curtain mm-hmm. um like it's what it is it's a black drape and they hit these like magnet things and it drops instantly like it's all black and then mm-hmm. boom within seconds the stage is and Rob had this and he, he would drop it and boom fireballs would go off in this and you expose this giant like demon set of stones and creatures and and flashing and rear screen projections and, and and pyro and dancing monsters and the crowd by the time Rob was over his set and rolling off stage the crowd's chanting yeah, and I'm standing backstage, going, "Holy crap! Anybody who doesn't know Rob Zombie knows Rob Zombie yeah. now." And he had what, all what a tough show to follow. Yeah, I and, mean, even if you love the music of the band that follows that, your takeaway is like, "Well, yeah, I love the headliner, and I came to see them, but man, this this band blew yeah. me away. Well, and, and you've never seen anything like this." And they and he did. He delivered. I was really impressed. Like, and they ran out of merch before they reached the last city. Yeah, it just was ridiculous. Yeah, and it yeah the um. It was weird. Um, the, sh- the we had two we had two more dates and we got canceled at the very end. And the last two dates was my hometown, St. Louis. Wow. In Kansas City, Ugh. two cities, two big cities. And I was like, oh yeah. And my mom was all jazz. I was going to introduce my mom to Rob Zombie, mm-hmm. my family out there. And all of a sudden, the can- I'm like, what? Canceled. The corn drummer had carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh. And his hands were so like destroyed. Mm-hmm. That he couldn't, he couldn't drum. Yeah, and Corn's like, oh crap. So, and they didn't just call somebody up. And the thing was, Rob was like, "What the fuck?" You know, like these are two big, they're two big fat paydays. Yeah, you know, huge paychecks. Rob was legit, man, was, and he was mad because he's like, "Just get another drummer." Like, yeah. And Corn, out of their respect, is kind of like, yeah, but when you have a band and the fans that love the band, they love that drummer. Mm-hmm. That he's the band, like. He, it's not the singer. You can't. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. That, can't. That's a little ridiculous. And I, I hope that that Rob got paid for those two canceled gigs, mm. depending upon what the contract was like. I don't know. It's a good question. I think if he if he did, he wouldn't probably complain as much. But yeah. But that was surreal. When I came back, I'm like, that's funny. People said, "How was?" It? I said, "It's like the best way to describe it was like working on a low budget monster movie every day for three months." Yeah. It's just always weird shit was happening. You had to pull something out of your ass last minute. Like, oh, we went. But having that amazing experience of being on the other side of that screen and watching the audience watch the monster movie that you made and (laughs) knowing that they're applauding you as much as they're applauding, you know, the soundtrack. And um, and that's something that people don't often think about as a possibility in special effects. Now, we we did um, an exhibition at um, at La Luz last year around this time of, of Guar. Oh my God, those guys are awesome. Yeah, and it was the um one of the, Hunter who was the major costume builder, the guy that really put Guar together, and who doesn't get as much of the credit because everybody you know thinks of you know odorous, um, humongous, you know like the the guy that was the the singer who who passed away, but Hunter was um would be the guy that battled Guar and and he was the mastermind behind that whole stage show and the costumes and all. Yeah, and now he does like a wrestling thing, and it's like a, I'm an independent wrestling thing where he brings that kind of that character that he put together at Guar and he goes into wrestling rings and it's incredible. But it's also like 
here's a guy who was kind of doing this thing for years in not in stadiums, in clubs. You know, and like putting these shows together. I went and saw Guar in like 1987. Yeah. and got sprayed with the green slime that took. I, I got sprayed with uh, bread food coloring. Yeah, um, it was uh, Simon Strahyman. She was having her uh, <laughs> ministry cycle, and she started spraying the audience. Yeah, you're just like. And I was with my friend. I was like, I was laughing. I'm like, oh, this is so goddamn surreal. It's hysterical. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of Grand Guignol thing, but that, that's making a big comeback. And also Ginger, the guy that um, that did the sculpting on the Indecline Naked Trump statue, his day job is in Vegas, and he works all the time working on special effects for all of the Vegas shows oh my God. that have monsters or creatures, and now all of them do. And, of course, in the run-up against Halloween, the casinos are fighting over the people that live in town to be like, we need, we, we've got, you know, three months till Halloween. We've got to, we got to build this up. We got to get this ready. And it's kind of in the casinos, you get that time you used to get in Hollywood because they know that you got to build it once and you can replace things from time to time, but it's got to be perfect when the show opens. And then you get in the habit of having a shop that you can build stuff. They're used to Cirque du Soleil having these very long oh, lead times. Those have you seen any of those, those, the cost? The, the it's amazing. It's it's breathtaking. And just you saying that makes me realize that that's why I should go to Vegas for Halloween because every time I do Halloween yeah. here, I'm, people don't realize like, oh, Ted, you must love how I'm like I dress up all the time. Yeah, it's like it's not this magical year for me. Like, oh, I always get to dress up. I'm like, no, do I have costumes? I have yeah. friends who are cosplayers. We go to cons and wear crazy costumes. The um, but the idea to go somewhere and watch some giant crazy um, there's a Wayne Toth, who's a makeup artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, great story. He I was he worked with us on Rob Zombie doing mm-hmm. the stuff for Zombie. Then he kind of took over. Uh, Norman and I both did, it, and we're kind of done. We went back into Hollywood working the movie stuff, mm-hmm. and Wayne picked up where we left off for doing stuff for Rob. He did the stuff for his movies and whatnot, mm-hmm. but he started doing these giant stalk around costumes. And Wayne started getting into the uh, Halloween Enterprise, mm-hmm. and he made these things called stalk arounds, which is a costume you wear, and it's this big aberration. Like you look out, it his follows mo- you. Well, it actually you wear it, and you look out his chest. Mm-hmm. There's a helmet you wear where you you puppeteer the head on top oh, of your gotcha, shoulder. Oh, gotcha, right, right. And these giant arms extend out, and you puppeteer from the elbows. Mm-hmm. So you have this massive reach, and you hide behind the cape. Mm-hmm. So it's a giant figure, and you're basically the, a human behind a cape, but it makes you like seven foot tall. Yeah. And Wayne did a variation of like a werewolf and Dracula and a mummy, and he did these variations, uh, and pitched them at this Halloween convention, and people ordered them, yeah. and he made them, and so all these people, and then he now is his business, and he has, it's called Halloween Town, and he's based in Burbank. Yeah, there's, a, I know Halloween Town, yeah, yeah I didn't his, realize that, that was that, his. That's his, and his, his wife runs that, and he does these giant, and it's one of the things I love. It's like Wayne was the pine. He was doing something that I was jealous of. And now I'm where I'm, he's at. It's like I had all this ability from one of the things I did in the movie industry, but I'm applying it somewhere else. Yeah. And Wayne did the same thing too. And now I think Wayne made balance about, you know, do still Hollywood stuff here and there. But his you know, majority of his income was doing these amazing pieces for Halloween. And the companies that buy are these people from different states. They do, you know, haunted mazes. Haunted houses and haunted prisons. So and, and huge. It's, yeah, it's so big huge. business, especially in the Midwest. Now, the the other thing, too, and we have to fill in some dots there, that um, Halloween Town is is on Magnolia Boulevard oh, in, in Burbank. Yes. And there's a couple of blocks of horror-themed shops all within walking distance. And there's Dark Delicacies. His. Oh, yeah, just through Dark Delicacies. Down the street, and there's um, Creature Feature. Oh, that's right. Yep, which yes. is, I believe, still there in a smaller space than they were before. 
and this Halloween Town. And Halloween Town, aside from being like the greatest Halloween goods kind of store that's oh, open year ultimate. round, it's fantastic. Does kind of dark art, art shows, um, and has in signing events. And now Norman Cabrera is also um, someone that people may know from the psycho- psychedelic um, rockabilly scene Ooh. as part of the um, the band the Ghastly ones. the Ghastly ones. And I see I see him almost every year when he comes in to shop for um, for Christmas. You know, we used to see each other quite regularly because we had a, a mutual friend named Donnie Gillespie right. who had a, um, a very a horror themed video store called Goblin Market. And dude, I miss it already. It's like yeah. I miss the whole video store format. I miss, I, but his store in particular. I mean, like he had that things. shop. Everybody came by. Guillermo del Toro spent tons of time in there. Um, you know, like guys before. I'm sure that Chet Sar was walking in and out of there before he was the Chet Sar that we know now. Right, and the thing with two people don't realize it with the and Goblin, Rob lived around the corner. Rob Zombie lived right around, around the, the corner. corner. He did, and he'd come in. And the thing was so funny about Goblin Market was that um, Donnie would work really hard to have these really obscure titles, and I remember talking to him, going, "Hey, do you remember that show? They made like a." Frankenstein, but it was based in the seventies on television. It was called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. And he just points over my shoulder and goes, "Yeah, it's right there on the show." Dan Curtis, I actually picked up the laser disc for him. Oh my god! And I, I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" And I like I watched it, and I'll tell you what was amazing about that movie when it was made. It still holds up. Yeah, the production value, the pacing, the editing. It's like and um, James Mason's in it. Yeah, and he, uh, it's such a great production, and it's and it's a really great talent of, of the. Uh, and then Mar- Jack Palance was in the Doctor Jekyll that came out in that era, I think too. Yeah. And um, I think it's also Dan Curtis production. That's when they made wrong. they made really good scary crap on TV for seventies. Yeah. It was like oh, the oh, Norless tapes is like one of my favorite movies. Oh, of and all don't time. don't don't forget the um, oh god, don't don't be afraid of the dark. Don't be afraid of the dark. Bad Ronald. Oh, Bad know. Ronald. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my, that's super seventies. That's like yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, uh, for just people, Bad Ronald is about a kid who um. He's a little off, and he this girl is teasing him, and I think he pushes her, and she falls and hits her head on a step. Yeah, and and her oh, but this thing didn't go right. And um, his mother's like, oh my god, we gotta we have to hide you, bad Ronald. We're gonna look for you. So she hides him in the walls of his house, and of course, then his mother dies, and then nobody knows. So he <laughs> he's perceives living in the walls of the house, the house and they sell the family moves in, and yeah. bad Ronald. Yeah, he's just this, oh, it's so surreal and funny. It's sort of like um, a cross between um, Flowers in the Attic. Yes. And, um, oh, golly, this is another really, really obvious kind of, uh, oh, and Benny's video. You know, the Verhoeven film about the kid that accidentally kills the girl and the family covers it up. It was sort of the first movie to really launch Paul Verhoeven. Not Verhoeven, um, the director of um, The Piano Teacher. Oh, okay. um, And... Austrian filmmaker. Um, I've, I've not seen this one. Oh wow! He also did, um, and he, he remade his own film actually about the kids that do the home invasion in the lake house. And it's got a terrible ending where they rewind everything. Oh, that, that already sounds horrible. But it's like it's this amazing movie until it reaches the end, and the end just uses this terrible movie making mechanic that that infuriates you. And um, and now it's it's keeping me from um. It's not Fastbender, um, but it's it's uh, someone will definitely email me and and I'll feel terrible when they they you know parade couldn't pull this <laughs> I know, out. And I'm saying here, there's things I'm spotting in my head like I can't should have came with notes. Yeah. Um, but no, that but but like you said earlier, is that that this is an era now where people when I, I I wrote and directed a film back in well it was 2002 or three we did it. And it, we didn't sell it until 2004. Mm-hmm. It's called Guardian of the Realm. Mm-hmm. 
guarding the you know guarding the realm, and it's a uh, it's a site like Buffy meets Blade thing, mm-hmm. and when I was, it was the birth of the. I always tell people like when you made movies, you had to shot on film. It was super expensive. And that yeah. stopped a lot of people from making movies because it was so. Damn you had eighteen thousand dollars in one take. Yeah. For an entire for a ninety minute feature. Yeah, and you had a movie, and if you had film, you had to do one or two takes, and you didn't get it. You were pretty much yeah. Screwed. That's but, without your cast. That's without your time. Right. Just the film. Right. So to make a ninety-minute movie yes. without paying for processing no, no. was going to cost you eighteen thousand dollars, and that that was enough to really stop stop and, anybody from, from and, moving forward. And the true people that did were true filmmakers. There were yeah. people who were insane. And so when the birth of digital age came, um, I was on the cusp of it because we started shooting my movie and HD came out. We were shooting mini DV tape. I was. Oh I remember. God. Yeah. Thank God I had a DP. He knew my buddy Ron Levy. Now he's director of photography. He's shooting stuff for television right now, mm-hmm. and movies. He saved us because he knew how to crush the blacks and light things. You know, he's, his big thing I learned from it was never, ever use available light. Light every shot. He goes, if you're outside, fine, but use a reflector. If, you, if it's too bright, use a flag. But light every shot you're doing because it's you're making your own damn movie, so make it look good as possible. Then you can match. Right, and do all this stuff. So we ended up making this movie, and the thing was so funny, was that it was a birth of digital age, and what happened was the market got flooded because then everybody out there a filmmaker and this is greatest quote from my friend Steve Norrington, who directed Blade and other movies. He said, making a movie is easy. Making a good movie is hard. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes just as much effort to make a bad movie as it, as it takes to make a good yeah. movie. Another, maybe a Bogdanovich quote. But the um, someone else that we were we were working with, both of us at the same time, because I was an actor mm-hmm. when we first met, I right. think. And you shot my space. Yeah, yeah. And there was the um, the film Surface that Mark did, I think. Yeah, Mark was developing this, this thing What's called... What's Mark's last name? Mark Allen. Mark Allen, of course. Mark Allen, and, and, and kudos to Mark. And the thing is, I think what happened was, and it broke my heart because Mark had this great concept it's uh, it's called Surface, and it's about this guy on this like giant Earth rover vehicle. It's huge, mm-hmm. like a giant RV, but big enough you can have like rooms and things in it. Like damnation alley, yeah, like but a da- the size of yeah. a hotel. Yeah, like it was huge. <laughs> and they were driving across, and he was his mission was to take these people somewhere, and they get lost. And the concept of Surface is that the planet is like the size. It's like an Earth-like planet, but it's the size of Jupiter. Mm. So you could get lost and like. So this planet, and so the entire planet is just a giant planet, and their adventure is them getting on this journey and they get lost, and there's all these different people they run into. So Mark pitched this concept, and I built uh, we Mark and I wheeled and dealed together, and I built the rover cockpit in yep. my place. Yep. We built a couple of set things for his green screen sets and stuff. And what happened was Mark shot all this stuff, and he, I was like, "Hey, Mark, he's well, I'm gonna do a trailer or this and that." And so what ended up happening was. Time was passing. I was hitting Mark up, and Mark just turned to me and goes, you know, he goes, first of all, I bit off more I can chew. He said there was all these visual effect people, that's, and Mark learned the same lesson I did when I was a kid making films mm-hmm. in your teens, is that everybody says yes. Until it comes time to show up. And when times to show up, and what happened was Mark had all these visual effects, and Mark could do some of them, but he couldn't do all of them. So he had these all these jobs delegated out to these people that said they would do it, and then as soon as the film actually was happening, everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, I can't get to this right now. And everybody just started dropping out. And Mark was like, well, without these people, I can't do this by myself. Yeah. So. And we, we shot like every weekend for a month and a half, yeah. I think. And he's got a rough cut of things. And he, it was a rough cut with visual effects shots missing. Yeah. I'd love to see that stuff. I I've would still too. never seen it. I, I saw like I was a co-star. <laughs> you're a co-star, and I was just a visual effects guy. I helped out on set a couple times. And, but yeah. wasn't um, Nathan Fillion in it? Like he had like a little cameo. And this is before Firefly. Oh my god! 
Like there was a big deal. He's like, oh, we got this guy and he's got a show that's coming out and it's a, he's a big deal. And I looked at him. He looked familiar, but I couldn't exactly tell oh him who he was. Oh, my God. He was the captain from yeah, Firefly. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and it was Nathan Fillion, I believe. Oh. And so, I mean, now you'd think that it'd be interesting <laughs> to revive because people would love to revive Firefly. All right. And you get to see this super young uh, Nathan Fillion. And he's kind of like this American flag type character. If you remember the Howard Chaykin comic. Right. And um, we're like on the other ship. You know, like like Nathan's this rock star guy who everybody loves, and we're like this other ship, and um, and you know, I called in a lot of people too that had a blast working on that. It was, it was, it's one of those things where just like many other, and this this story is not new to any independent filmmakers. A lot of people, right. a lot of films out there that just never get seen the light of day. Yeah, they get made, and then either production pulls out. And that's the one thing people don't realize that in Hollywood and television shows, same thing happens. But mm-hmm. they spend millions, and all it takes is one executive producer to go. I don't get it. Or you know what? I'm not liking that second lead. Or yeah. you know, let's replace that girl. Yeah. And um, you know, sometimes they retool it and it works. You know, Big Bang Theory is a, a wonderful example of that. No that kidding. They shot they shot the original pilot with a completely different actress, and um, and it didn't work. And then they they shot it instead with um, oh, what's her name? Um, the lead actress of, of Big Bang Theory. Kaylee or whatever, right? So they reshot it with her, and it worked. And um, and there's there's been several shows like that, but then there's also been you know like the the failed Jack Black you know pilot, and um, and I did I think three pilots that that went nowhere you know yeah. in a two year period, which is demoralizing. But in effects, you know, you can go to the next job, right. and that's Exa- kind of a great thing. Is that like sometimes you'll do things for the labor of love, and you'll mm-hmm. you'll you'll let people cash in their favors, you'll get those favors back eventually. Right. And the thing know? and the thing too in the movie industry, we have the same thing, but we build props like mm-hmm. we do things uh we'll be on a big show and we'll build some big elaborate prop and they don't use it. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a lot of that too. My favorite was um Look at Alien. <laughs> you know, like Alien came out of Dune, you um, know, and Dark Star. You know, yeah, like, right. And that yeah, and the thing was so funny with that was that I did a uh, I did Into Darkness, mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek, which I, I like to tell you what, the new Dark, Star Trek reboot, which I didn't mind some of the first one. Second one, the one I worked on, is the least of my favorites. It's a mess. But, but it's got Benedict Cumberbatch. Right. And so the gag is, and him, he actually replaced um, Vinicius del Toro. Uh, what weird casting. Well, no, Vinicius del Toro was going to play Khan. Right. Well, and, he kind of. He looks like Khan. He was going to yeah. be a perfect Khan. And always people are like, were going off for like, oh, Cumberbatch, why they cast him? And people don't realize that. He was not their first choice. They had Vinicio de Toro, and he was going to play Khan. And being Vinicio de Toro, who he is, he's kind of he's kind of a methody kind of eccentric eccentric guy. actor. And halfway through, and then when they're getting ready to shoot, he took I don't want to do it. He pulled out, and yeah. they're like, "Oh crap!" So when a movie Hollywood have filmed that budget of that momentum, you have, it's like a giant boulder rolling downhill. You can't stop it. Yeah. So they go, "We need somebody to replace this guy. He needs to be a big caliber name. Mm-hmm. He needs to be able to." So they're throwing, and they were scrambling, and Cumberbatch stepped up and goes, okay, I'll do it. And, and I she, thought he did a great job. He did, and no no fault to him. I don't blame him for the film. I think the film was kind of a bit of a mess. But the gag is I built this giant hand cannon, mm-hmm. this big giant laser gun, and uh, we built, built this thing. And they were, the art department and this prop master, I'm sorry, I use that word very loosely, prop <laughs> master, uh, the prop guy, uh, we built this giant gun, and- they made us like, oh, that's kind of cool. Can you add? We add these bells and whistles and details and crap on it. And I ended up making two super lightweight ones, which is the one he used in the movie. And it's all this making this go through the little hoops and do this detail. 
it's on the screen for like five seconds. And it's, it's not in a close-up. Oh, dude, it's it, it's like it, it could have been made out of a cardboard tube spray-painted black. It's hysterical. Yeah. He jumps around and swings it in a couple shots and then drops it in the ground. That was it. And I kind of chuckled in the theater and laughed and went, oh, there it was. But <laughs> well, that's the biz, though. That is the biz. And I think that's probably a good place to wrap up because we could do this all day. Yes, we could. But the um, the the thing that I want people to, to take away from this is, again, that um, in a way, fortune favors the bold, That um, but that there's a lot that's, that's chance. And the beautiful thing about there being social networks is that you can get into groups within groups, you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, right. and Instagram. Right. And you you get adept at trading photos of your work and people that are getting jobs on stuff may hit a point like where the special effects equivalent of Benicio Del Toro drops out and they're like, who are we going to get? And you're like, you know what? I was just on my Instagram. I saw this dude's image. It looks like he does pretty good work. Um, you know, we've we've exchanged a couple of questions back and forth on projects. Um, let's give him a call and see if he can do it. And so, like, using that whole kind of social tribe atmosphere, it's there is a great benefit. Just as I always said to um, to people who are artists looking to show in galleries, um, I, you need a peer group, and that peer group is sort of the same thing that a fraternity is on a college campus. Right. These are guys that are going to give you jobs. These are guys that are going to make your work better because you're going to have some competition that you can work with. And so um, while it was really difficult to kind of break into industry um, well up until the video age in, in, the, um, in the early 90s, it's now a little bit easier, and it's a little bit easier for you to do so on your own terms. And you don't have to go to Joe Belasco school, and you no. don't have to go and spend all this money no. at, a, at a diploma mill no. to get um, a degree on stuff. I will say that you know if you do go to a school like Joe Belasco – You'll get glamour makeup uh, instruction that you can take to the bank. Right. You know that 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 it's it's probably worth what you pay for it, and you can get a job doing glamour makeup. You'll make money forever. But if your real passion is doing special effects or gore effects or makeup right. effects, then you can really just network with people online, and you can get a low-paying job to get on set, get the experience, and then hop from production to production. Right. My my good advice to tell everybody this, and people always ask me what. Do you, Whatever you do, love it. Don't like it, love it. I get people that write to me and go, hey, Tim, I'm kind of thinking about working in the movie business. Like, eh, yeah, don't. Scratch, no. Yeah. If you write, I'm thinking about it, I kind of like, no. It's either you want to do something or you don't. If you want to do something and you want to build something, build it. People always say, where do I start? I don't know. Start building. Start building anything. But you need to do it. Don't mm -hmm. come up with excuses. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid to start. What if it doesn't turn out good? So what? Your next one will be better. If that mm -hmm. doesn't turn out, your third one will be better. You got to keep at it. Keep building. Mm -hmm. It's in you guys, and if you want to do something, it's it, it's the fire in the belly, it's the furnace that makes you do what you do. So failure is assured. Yes, um, it's also the building block of character, and it's and, the building block of success. And that's how I learned is by failing. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey man, thanks for coming out, Ted. It's been great talking to this you. This is awesome. Thank you so much. It's a blast. Shoot out some more social media. Where can people find you? Oh, yes, yes. You guys can find me on Twitter at Evil Ted. Uh, Twitter at, at EvilTed40. You can get me on Instagram, EvilTed underscore channel. You can go to my website, EvilTedSmith.com. You can go to my YouTube channel, which is the Evil Ted channel. So guys, definitely check it out. Huh? All my stuff is there. Awesome. And again, thanks everybody for listening in. We'll catch you next week on Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy.